It is great to be here uh, together this morning. Great to be able to um, share with you the next instalment of our series. Before I, I go ahead, I do want to just thank and honour David Lambourne for what he shared a couple of weeks ago. Um, I thought he was so sensitive around uh, Remembrance Day and um, it was brilliant at just unpacking that I am the resurrection and the life. So thank you so much, David, for that. I was actually sat next to Ben Oliver during that sermon and um, uh, halfway through the sermon I leant over to Ben and said, this guy's taking my whole talk. This is, this is the content that I was going to cover. And so Ben leant back over to me and, and said, well, why don't you get up in a couple of weeks' time and just, just play the audio that David's preached and then just, just go and sit down. I'm not going to do that, but I do commend it to you and I encourage you to, to go back and listen to it if you haven't already, but if you have, um, please, please do revisit it. <clears throat> so we're going to move on. Uh, we've reached the sixth I am statement. And the sixth one is, I am the way, the truth and life. But what we need to do is we need to understand the context of this statement. So what we're going to do is we're going to read a little bit of this passage. So we're going to read John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. So let me read this for us now. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go there and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, sorry, this is, take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that your word is truth. We thank you so much that you speak to us through it. And we pray that you will open our hearts this morning to what you have to say to us, Father. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Some of you may know, I grew up in uh, a, a country called Nepal. I spent 10 years growing up there. Some of you may not know this. Uh, this is my family growing up in Nepal. Um, and I know exactly what you're thinking. What a family of fashion icons. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We were, we were very before our time. Um, so we spent, we spent 10 years in Nepal. They were very formative years for me. My entire childhood was spent in Nepal. Um, I didn't really know anything different. That was home. That was what I knew. So the country in green here, um, that is Nepal. For any of you who don't know where it is, I'm sure most of you probably do know where it is. And then the country in sort of reddy orange, I'm sure you're familiar with, the UK. Um, so I had spent 10 years of my childhood in Nepal. Um, and then after being in Nepal for 10 years, I came back to the UK um, as an 11-year-old. And... Uh, a number of people had said to me, look, when you return from such a different environment, such a different culture, different country, this, it's going to be difficult for you to transition and settle in. Um, and I just ignored all of this. I dispelled all, all of this uh, advice. And I thought, no, I'll be absolutely fine. This is not going to trouble me. It won't be a problem. Um, and it wasn't. 
It wasn't for the first 18 months. I was absolutely fine. I was going 100 miles an hour through life, and it was brilliant. But unfortunately, it caught up with me. And I was at a, a Christian summer camp as a 13-year-old, and I just completely broke down. I had a complete identity crisis breakdown. Um, and the basis of my breakdown was that I didn't know where home was. I, didn't, I, I felt lost. I felt geographically lost. I'd spent 10 years in Nepal, and then I'd moved over to the UK thinking it was going to be fine, and I didn't know where my home was. Was it somewhere in between the two? Was it still Nepal? Was it the UK? I was geographically lost. I didn't know where home was. And I began feeling this deep want and this desire to get back home. It's what I was longing for, I was longing to get home. Spiritually, every one of us, whether we're a follower of Jesus or not, has this same longing and this same desire to get home. And even if you ignore that, even if you run away from it, there'll be that moment, sooner or later, there'll be that moment where you put your head down on the pillow at night and you'll be overwhelmed by that feeling of, I must have been created for something more than this. That I, I'm not fulfilled, I'm not satisfied, I must have been created for something more. There must be something more than this. The truth is that you were created for a different place. That's the truth. This earth is not your home. You have a home, and it's called eternity. It's called heaven, and God is preparing that home for you. And until you come to terms with the fact that that is your home, you will, and, and that that's the truth, you will find yourself continually running away from that. And you will find yourself lost and with this feeling of, I don't belong here, I belong back home. And that feeling that I was contending with when I didn't know whether home was Nepal or the UK. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. I think he absolutely nails it. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. I love that summary. I think it's fantastic. So John chapter 14, 15, and 16, just for context, is, is really Jesus' farewell address before he goes to the cross. So Jesus has this final prayer for his disciples. And his final prayer is that they should be united in love. In fact, he says, the whole world will know that you're my followers by the way that you love each other. What an incredible mission that is for us as a church and a community. That this community of Basingstoke would look on us and see us as being a house of love and a house of unity. Linda just said, anyone who comes through the door is welcome. A house of love and a house of unity. What a mission that is. And wouldn't it be brilliant if, if the community around us and beyond Basingstoke looked at us and said, these people are connected by something that is greater. These people have encountered a real love and that love has a name. It is Jesus Christ. So let's read on in the passage 
and this is what is said. John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus is saying this to his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Why is Jesus saying this? Why is he saying, do not let your hearts be troubled? He's, a, he's about to go to the cross, and he's comforting his disciples, who are full of anxiety, they're full of fear, they're full of sorrow. They thought Jesus was going to come and rule and reign on earth as king, overthrow the Romans, lead a, a political upheaval, and that he would reign on earth but Jesus was coming to serve humanity by dying on a cross. I want you to be able to identify with a particular character quality that we see in Jesus at this moment. What I find fascinating in the text is that Jesus is about to go to the cross. It should be the disciples who are comforting Jesus. And yet it's the other way around. Jesus is comforting his disciples. And the point I want you to pick up is that this is true for us as well. That in our moments, in your moments of discomfort and the moments where Jesus should feel in crisis and chaotic, he takes the focus off himself and he puts the focus on you. And he meets you where you're at. And he comes alongside you. He's the God who comforts you wherever you're at and whatever you're going through. I just find it amazing that he takes that focus off himself and he puts that focus on you in your moment of trouble. Okay, let's read on. So, what I find brilliant about this is that every command Jesus gives is then followed by a promise or a blessing. So he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. This is the next bit. My father's house has so many rooms, sorry, has many rooms, that if, you were, if it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. So here Jesus is not talking about an earthly home. He's talking about a heavenly home, the home that you were designed for. It's the home that you long for. It's the home that's calling your name. And although you're running, and although you're lost, he's saying, come back, come home, come home. And this, this heaven isn't just a state of mind. It is a physical place. Jesus says there are, there are many rooms. That's good news. It's good news that there's many rooms. It's, this is a big house. There's plenty of room there for you. There's plenty of room for me. There's plenty of room for people in Basingstoke in this house that God is building for us. God is building a home, and he wants people in it. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples, but he's also speaking to us. And he's saying, get past your worry, get past your anxiety, get past your fear, you don't need to walk in trouble. You don't need to walk in fear. Because I've got a promise for you. It's not a temporary promise. It's an eternal promise. I'm building a home for you. 
So I was very, very fortunate. In, in 2011, um, I managed to go and travel around India with one of my best friends. This is Divian. I went to university with him. He was the best man at our wedding. Um, have a lot of love for this guy. And um, we went uh, traveling around India for eight weeks. We had a fantastic time. It was absolutely brilliant. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. One of the most uh, uh, hilarious aspects of our trip was that uh, Divian is second generation Sri Lankan. Um, uh, he was born in Eastleigh. He went to school in Winchester. He's British through and through. Uh, but Almost everyone who came up to us and, and talked to us on our trip assumed that he was my tour guide. <laughs> that, that, was, that was the assumption that, he had, that everyone had when they came up to us. So people would come up to him, and they would speak Hindi or Tamil, or whatever their dialect was, and they would speak it very, very quickly to him, and, and he, he would just be completely baffled and not know what to say in response. Having, having grown up for 10 years in Nepal and speaking Nepali and a little bit of broken Hindi, I would then interact with them and start speaking a little bit of broken Hindi to them. And you could just see what was going on in their mind. They couldn't believe the role reversal that they were encountering in these two travelers. Um, so yeah, that, that was entertaining almost on a daily basis for me. Um, but we got to go to, um, to many, many places throughout our eight weeks in India. Um, we were really, really fortunate. Um, and one of my favorite places that we went to was this place. As you can see, I was, uh, I was a little bit excited about going there. Um, sorry, slightly grainy picture. It was a while ago. Um, I obviously had hair, so it was a while ago. I know you're all thinking it. Um, but so this, is, this, is, this building's the Taj Mahal, as many of you will know. A um, little bit of smog, so it's not, it's not totally clear, but you'll recognize it as the Taj Mahal. This building is a serious piece of kit. This is one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. It is one of the seven wonders of the world, and it's one of the most beautiful buildings on Earth. No doubt about it. Does anyone know when it was built? Surely somebody knows. Does anyone know when, when the Taj Mahal was built? When did the building work start? Good guess, not too far away. Anyone else, no? Okay, so the building work started in 1632. It took 22 years to build the Taj Mahal. It took over 20,000 workers and over 1,000 elephants to build this building. And materials were sourced from countries all around, China, Tibet, Sri Lanka, all of these countries were used to get the materials in order to build this. I was happier to see it than I look in that photo. Um, but it's, this building is magnificent. You go up close, it's magnificent, it's ornate. It is mind-blowing to visit. Yet it pales into insignificance compared to the home that God is preparing for you, called heaven. Jesus continues in his teaching, and this is what he says in verse 4 and 5. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? I feel bad for Thomas. Okay, so he, he appears only a couple of times in Scripture. Okay, and each of the times, he, he, he is this sort of, 
doubting individual. He, he's almost a universal embodiment of someone, what, someone of doubt looks like. We'll say, oh, there's a doubting Thomas. C can you imagine if, if your stumbling block, your one stumbling block, was how everyone identified you? It's like, oh, there's irritating Ian. Can, can you imagine? Like that, that is how he's defined. I feel sorry for him. But I find it really interesting as well because Thomas represents you and Thomas represents me. Jesus makes this grand speech, you know the place where I'm going. And Thomas goes, uh, no, 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 we don't. Jesus, we have no idea what you're talking about. If I'd been writing this passage, I don't think I would have included Thomas. It, it doesn't make the story as smooth as it should be. I mean, sorry, you want me to include someone who's choosing to rebuttal the saviour of the world? I, I don't think I would have included it. But Thomas is here for a reason. Thomas represents you and me, and this is what God is saying through this. He's saying God works with doubters. God works with people who make mistakes. God works with the unqualified. That's who he is. And notice what happens next. Jesus doesn't bypass Thomas's doubt. He speaks directly to him. And this is what he says. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the first thing Jesus says in his response is, I am the way. But what does he mean when he says, I am the way? What, what does that mean? Jesus is saying, I am the way back to God. I am the way back home. Your heart is longing for home. You desire communion with God. And guess how you get there? I am the way. Let me, let me unpack this for you with a little example. Oh, sorry, the formatting appears to have gone awry in the transition. Work with me on this. Um, so we've got you on the left, and we've got God on the right. And we've got this separation. And we, we can't get across to God. We're separated from him. Again, sorry, this is not very easy to read at all. And what we tend to do is rather than focusing on God, we get distracted by other things that we think will bring us fulfillment or satisfaction. We focus on job, money, on sex, on popularity, social media, friends, entertainment, whatever it is, to try and fill that gap. And, and these are not necessarily bad things in themselves. But the truth is, none of them are getting us back to God, and none of them are solving the separation that we have. So Jesus comes in. And that is our route back to God. That is our bridge back to God. That is what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the way. The cross is your way home to God. Jesus is the way and the only way. 
And I love what Peter says in Acts. He reaffirms this, where he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It is only in Jesus. He is the way. I had a really interesting discussion. I was in Uganda a number of years ago, and I ended up in a minibus with nine Dutch people. Right. I love Dutch people. They are so fun. They are so engaging, so fun to be around. Um, and so I'm in this minibus with nine Dutch people. And the guy that I'm sat next to, um, it turns out, we get chatting, it turns out he's a pastor of a church in Rotterdam. Amazing. Brilliant. My eyes light up. Let's, let's chat. Let's chat. Um, and what transpired was that um, he, he didn't think that Jesus was the only way to God. He thought there were a number of routes across a number of faiths, um, and each to their own, and you kind of work your way to God. And I opened up God's word and humbly just tried to point out to him what scripture was saying. And this is the verse that I pointed him to. I said, it's pretty definitive. The Bible is saying that Jesus is the only way back to God. So we've looked at Jesus saying, I am the way. And then he goes on to say, I am the truth. But again, what does he mean when he says, I am the truth? Jesus is saying, he is the truth of God. If you want to know what God looks like, what he sounds like, what he acts like, look at Jesus. He is the truth. Psalm 119 Verse 142 says, Your righteousness is everlasting and your law is truth. And in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus explains that he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. Jesus is the authoritative standard for righteousness and fulfillment of the truth of God. But what, what do we do with this information? So... John chapter 8, 31 and 32, says this. To the Jews who had, be, who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is one of these scriptures that gets misquoted and misunderstood. People often just say, the truth will set you free. And that's true, and that's accurate, but it's also incomplete. This is what we need to focus on. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. <coughs> then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's not just the truth that sets you free. It's knowing the truth that sets you free. If you don't know the truth, you can't apply the truth. This whole book is full of truth. But just because you hold the book doesn't set you free. Just because it's on your bookshelf doesn't mean that you're set free. You have to know the truth and you have to apply the truth. You have to apply the book. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. When Adam and Eve got deceived in the Garden of Eden, it was very simple, really. Essentially, they chose to believe a lie 
rather than the truth. The enemy is trying to deceive you into thinking that you can't handle the truth. But Jesus says, I am the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus has said, I am the way. He said, I am the truth. And the last thing he says is, I am the life. This is arguably his most audacious statement out of the three of them. I was uh, playing a game of, an informal game of cricket with Simon Biggs, many of you will know him as Biggsy, um, and a group of our friends up near Crabtree. We were playing this, this game of cricket, there was a lot of banter going back and forth, it was, it was all good fun. Um, but what we'd done at the start of the game is we'd set a, a couple of the rules, um, and one of, the, one of the rules that we'd set was, if you hit the ball into the forest, which was on the right-hand side, then you can have six runs, but you're also out. Six and out. Some of you will have heard of it. So we very clearly established this as one of the main rules of the game. So a couple of people batted in this game, and then, and then Simon Biggs came into bat. Uh, a few balls had happened, and what do you know, he hits the ball into the woods. Um, and so he was unmoved. He, he didn't hand the bat over to anyone else. He just stayed there. And some of us were a little bit confused, going, well, you've got six runs, but you're out. And we came up to him, uh, me and, and this close friend of mine, and, and we said, well, you know, I th we think you're out because th the rules suggested that, that if you hit it into the woods that you're out, and, and those are the rules that we made. And I couldn't believe his response. He was stood there holding the bat, and he went, I am the law. <laughs> what an outrageous statement. <laughs> Slightly egotistical. Um, I, I, you might be trying to enact the law. I don't think you are the law. But, um, but this is not dissimilar to, to the bold, audacious claim that Jesus makes here, saying, I am the life. But Jesus is saying this because he's God. But what, again, what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the life? What is, what, what is he getting at? In order for us to grasp this, we need to understand two things. We need to understand sin, and we need to understand what Jesus did on the cross. And friends, this is where we need really, really good theology. With sin, so often we fall into the trap of categorizing it into different categories of severity and morality. We say, oh, that person's done that little sin. Oh, that person did that sin. But the reality is, that's not what Jesus came for. Jesus didn't say sin makes you bad. It's much worse than that. Sin makes you dead. This is why all testimonies are equally valid. Because sin makes you dead. And Jesus makes you alive. Let's read this. Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Not, not you were bad in your transgressions. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And this carries on into verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ 
even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. Let's see a few more. Again, apologies for the formatting. I don't know what's happened, but Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. James, then desire when it, is, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. We need good theology on this. We were dead in our transgressions, but we were made alive in Christ. Sin makes you dead, but Jesus is the life. I'm married to a palliative care, end-of-life care doctor. As far as my understanding goes... There aren't multiple degrees of dead. It's just dead. And yet we categorise sin differently, but all sin makes you dead. But Jesus came because he wanted to make you alive with him forever. So we've got a handle on sin, but we need to clearly understand what Jesus did on the cross. When he went to the cross... Jesus wasn't dying for your sins. It was bigger than that. He was dying as your sin. Galatians chapter 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was dying as your sin. What I find interesting is that Jesus, when he's saying what he's saying to the disciples, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he is hours away from going to the cross to die. And yet he's talking about life. Could it be that he's trying to get a message over to us, which is this. You spend so much time focusing on the temporary, but I'm the God of the eternal. I'm hours away from dying, but what you don't realise is that I'm three days away from resurrecting. And if you come to me, you will find life and life more abundantly. Jesus is saying, I am the way back home. He's saying, I am the truth of God. And he's saying, I am the life. Apart, There is no life apart from me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is living and that it speaks to us today. Lord, we thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you that you boldly claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. And you back that up on the cross. We thank you so much 
for who you are and for what you've done and that sacrifice for us. And Lord, we pray that you will open our hearts so that we can further our understanding of who you are and our way back to God. In Jesus' name.